I guess I've garnered a reputation for being somewhat opinionated, especially when it comes to music. If it hasn't been readily apparent, then I've done a good job of publicly concealing it, and I will pat myself on the back for a job well done later. Behind closed doors, I do manage to put quite a lot of bands on the grill to get roasted, but really, a huge part of being a music fan is critiquing bands and mercilessly critiquing bands. Being opinionated, however, eventually ends up with having to take it all back, suck it up, and eat crow. I've had to do it many, many times, and as much as it stings, I see them as learning moments. For example, let's take Radiohead, a critic's darling band, but when they came out with Pablo Honey, I dismissed them as Brit Rock Pap. I didn't even listen to the album. I heard the single, saw the video, eye-rolled through it all, probably made a pretend vomit face, and moved on. It wasn't until I was in the backseat of someone's car being forced to listen to The Bends by Radiohead, the band's sophomore album. And hearing that person rave about it made me hear it in a completely different way. I went home and I actually bought it on CD when I didn't even own a CD player. And from that moment on, I was a Radiohead fan. Over the years, similar moments have made me reevaluate not the bands, but myself and trying to figure out where all this defensive, divisive dislike came from. And it helped me get over it and get into different kinds of music and bands I thought I'd never get into in a million years when I was younger and a lot more aggro. The Bare Naked Ladies are one of those bands. They rose to prominence while I was in high school. I just didn't get them. Their fun acoustic guitar approach was the antithesis of what I thought a contemporary band should be, and as their star rose higher and higher, my dismissal of them was swift and unforgiving. They were from Toronto too, so being hometown heroes made it all that more irritating. But I must reiterate here, I was in high school. Of course, eventually a few years later, because I was in a band too, our social circles would sometimes cross. I'd find out that they were kind of cool and down to earth and super grounded. I found out they liked cool music or what I deemed to be cool music. And that went a long way for me. I slowly started to concede that they were actually really great singers with really catchy melodies. And as I started to get deeper into the music biz from an insider vantage point, I realized they were stand-up guys too, who treated their crews and the people around them with respect devoid of any pretension. I now have 100% respect for the Bare Naked Ladies. What they've managed to achieve and how they achieved it, we as a Canadian music scene are better because of them. Stephen Page was the lead singer of the Bare Naked Ladies for 21 years. Hits like Enid, Brian Wilson, If I Had a Million Dollars, Jane, Alternative Girlfriend, It's All Been Done, The Old Apartment, One Week. I'll stop here. But there's more songs to list, all featuring his lead vocals front and center. Steven's been solo for over 10 years now, and it is far from slowing down. He's put out six solo albums and also plays in the band The Trans-Canada Highwaymen with Mo Berg of The Pursuit of Happiness, Chris Murphy of Sloan, and Craig Northey of The Odds. Just like I felt when I talked to Blaine Cartwright of Nashville Pussy a few episodes back, talking to Steven here was actually quite comforting hearing someone in my field of work in the same position I'm in, but handling it in what sounds to be a very calm, collected, and logical way is quite comforting to my high anxiety ears. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's his voice. It's got to be his voice. It's very reassuring and calming, perfect for these times. During this whole lockdown, it's been inspiring to watch him continue to do his live-from-the-basement shows playing virtually for his rabid audience every weekend. It was a real pleasure to talk to Stephen, who actually has the distinction of being part of an elite club of guests who have appeared on this podcast and my other podcast, The Regal Beagle Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the much-loved television sitcom Three's Company. Stephen did that podcast last year, season six, episodes 11 and 12. So, without further ado, here's Stephen Page on this episode of the Danko Jones podcast, and it starts now. 
Going good. How are you, Stephen? I'm not so bad. Am I getting you uh, in Toronto or outside of Toronto? No, I live uh, outside of Syracuse, New York. Oh, man. Okay. Wow. Okay. I thought for some reason you were in the Toronto area. No, I've been down here for about, oh, gosh, maybe a dozen years now almost. Oh. Pre COVID, I was in Toronto a lot, but, uh, you know, my kids. We're still there, and uh, but they're all scattered around now, anyways, and I can't really get across the border, regardless. Yes, that is uh, a tight situation to be in. I know. Um, I, I read up on your pre-COVID happenings, and you had a musical already for Stratford. Yeah, we were actually um, we were actually in rehearsal when everything happened, so it was uh, it was really weird, and you know, it's of course disappointing, but uh, in the grand scheme of things, nothing compared to what other people have to deal with. Yeah, I mean, uh, for us, we had, so far, five tours wiped off the table, five yeah. tours and counting, so yeah. Yeah, it just keeps going. We had, uh, I had that, but then I had like two summer tours in the U.S. that have already passed that never happened, Yeah, and a U.K. tour that's supposed to be on right now that didn't happen, and then, it, I mean, even, uh, I just had a tour booked for Ontario for next March that's not happening until March 2022. Yeah. Oh, 2022. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? What do you, when do you think things are going to start? Um, like, start? Uneducated guess and just from, you know, uh, rabid following of vaccine teams and stuff. Um, the va- I, I feel the vaccine will exist um, somewhere between March and August of next year. Right. However, when we get it, uh, best case scenario between May and August of next year, if they can, you know, in, take this time to get all their manufacturing in order, you know. Well, and then you have the the possibility of let's say, uh, let's assume that Trump wins again, whether he does legally or not, and make sure that people don't have access to the vaccine, um, and then we have the anti-vaxxers around the world. So, like, is the vaccine even going to be effective because of that? Well, um, I mean, I know you're in America. So, in Canada, I know there's at least four vaccine teams. And there is, I think at least in Saskatoon, there's, like, a building being set aside for manufacturing. Right. Whether the anti-vaxxers affect whether people take it or not, they already, they're already saying the vaccine's like going to maybe be only 45% effective, but that's still great for herd yes. immunity and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So the anti-vaxxers will benefit from the people taking the vaccine, whether they realize it or not. As they always do. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Amazing. Yeah, see, like, I, what we saw early, like early in the pandemic, we saw everybody's spring and summer tours get automatically shifted to next year right so you know uh, an april may tour of 2020 got moved to 2021 and i i think that that's optimistic and from what i'm hearing like big shows you know big festivals and arena shows and stuff at least in in the uk and europe i was talking to my agent there it sounds like they're they're not looking at booking anything until 2022 i don't like this new normal thing because even in the last six months of the pandemic, we went from frontline workers, grocery store clerks are our heroes to right. yelling at them and mistreating them yep. like they were in the pandemic. So what I'm, my point is, 
you know, we can all talk about it, but the moment the vaccine exists, I think in a second, we'll revert back to how it was before all this and forget about where we are right now. It'll all be in the rear view mirror and we'll all go, oh yeah, right. Back right. to normal. Well, and I, you know, I have seen some things where they say that, you know, in these kinds of situations where, um, you know, especially the first four months of the, of the, of the uh, the lockdown and everything is that people aren't creating memories, so they won't really remember mm. what, what it was like. It will it won't be easy to remember what the situation was because you don't have specific memories of a time because all the days just blended into each other. That's a great point. I mean, even doing this podcast, I'm doing it weekly, and every introduction, I talk about the pandemic because I guess I've noted that subconsciously that. I need to remember this and look back and think about how I was thinking. Totally. That, that, that's, I do these weekly live from home, live from my basement shows. And, you know, sometimes it feels like a bit of a, I don't know, it's a, it, it, it's hard work because I try and make every show different and play different songs. It's not like being on tour where you kind of have a set that you can manipulate a little bit, but in general, this flow of the set is the same. And here I'm doing all this new stuff. But it's the kind of, I realize it's the only way for me to mark my week. Mm-hmm. Is okay. Saturday, I've got to get my set list done. I'm taking requests from audiences. I'm organizing all that. I'm practicing stuff, and then I do the show. And it's the same thing for the audience. I think for a lot of them, that's kind of how they mark their week. So it's you know it's been healthy too. Yeah, it's the only way I think to keep you know mentally fit as everyone goes back to work except us. That's right. And so, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> for me, I, I'm still hesitant upon uh, doing new music, but doing the podcast is an easy way for me to exercise my mind and, and also be social, talking to you. You're going to be one of the few people I speak to this week. You know what right. I mean? <laughs> yeah. So it, it's nice. And also, because we're in the same line of work, I need to feel comfort that there's someone else in the same situation. Yeah, it's important, and I think everybody's dealing with it differently. Some people are in greater denial than others. Others are like scrambling to do stuff, and others are kind of waiting it out, which is not really economically feasible. It's, I mean, how do we, really how do we make a thing right now? Sorry, else, how do we make a living as everybody else goes back to work? And it's you know it can be a hassle for most other industries that people are in, but there's. You know, we've already been scrambling for the last decade trying to figure out how to make a living doing this. And the mm -hmm. one way we could do it was live concerts. And that's gone right now for, you know, who knows how long. So how do you plan? How do you how do you save? How do you pay the bills? Yeah, it's um, that's the part of the equation that I've got my head in the sand currently. Yeah. Um, so I'm just hoping to God that come May or June of 2021, I will at least know an end point so I can plan my life. Yep. But in the meantime, <laughs> I am trying to busy myself with, you know, doing this podcast. And I'm enjoying it, too. Um, I've kind of made it, it's come more in the foreground of my life now. So, nice. yeah, it's, it's fun to do. And, and reaching out to people that, I, I've always wanted to talk to like like yourself, um, and and having a really great excuse to do it. So this is great that you're on. Happy to be here. You know what I noticed? I realized whether you knew it or not, we have a lot in common. Yeah. Tell me in what, in what ways? Okay, so we both grew up in Scarborough. Yeah. We both were in the gifted programs. We both went to York University. Where did you go to high school in Scarborough? Oh, I didn't go to high school in Scarborough. I went to high school downtown. Okay. Yeah. But I know Woolburn Collegiate, yep. and, and uh, I, I lived near Lamoureux. Okay. So I grew up near Lamoureux, yeah. And uh, we both sing. We both play guitar, bands, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't know we had all these things in common. So that's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I've, I've what, never had it. What did a, you take at York? I took film, and I just got my degree in June. Congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it took uh, – I, I, last year after a tour, I'd spent the whole tour going, I need to get my degree. And so I went to York campus, which is completely different now. It looks right. 
crazy now. I went and did a, a like a mental health talk. I do mental health um, speaking stuff, uh, public speaking stuff, and uh, I couldn't believe how different it was. They've just crammed all these other buildings onto that campus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was. I uh, was st- still able to figure out my way around in the fine arts building, uh-huh. so I was able to find uh, the person I had to meet. And uh, initially, she told me that I had to re-enroll and get all, you know, become a student again. And then as I was doing that, as I was on the phone, you know, um, registering back into York, it, I, I found out that I could, I had all the credits. I, I, there was some mix-up, but I was able to get the degree. Oh, so you didn't even have to do any more coursework? No, because they changed the degree requirements in 2001. So I had I have actually been eligible for the last nine years. So it's good to That's not amazing. just yeah sit on your your keister. And I I did have I really wanted to register again. I, I was all ready for it. I was yep. gonna do school on tour. You know I was ready for it, mentally prepared for it. Um, and uh, whoa, dodged a bullet there. Holy smokes! <laughs> <laughs> you know, imagine being being a full grown adult and then having and, and having to fail at homework. Oh my god! It's just <laughs> just a confirmation you're a dumbass when you know nineteen yeah. year old kids are out talking you. Well, I, like I didn't finish my degree when I was at York, and I you know I've spent the last whatever thirty years or whatever it is thinking I should finish my degree. It's, I, I should just go and just do the last bit, bit of coursework. And part of me is like, well, what if I'm stupid? Like, what if I can't do this? And I've spent all this time thinking, now I have all this life experience. And I remember sitting in class sometimes back then, and there'd be a, a mature student, like maybe somebody who actually had life experience, and I'd spend the whole time rolling my eyes at them. Exactly. Like, oh, come on, Mom. Don't tell me about your, your life. I'm starting fine. I know everything. And I'm like, I'm going to be that guy on the other side of that thing. And 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 didn't we roll our eyes because they always asked the most questions? Oh, absolutely. Oh. But the questions were really an opportunity for them to tell us something about their lives. <laughs> it's so true. And I that thought ran through my head too. And I said to myself, I'm gonna be a mute. I'm not gonna be one of those people. And and so I was already the thing is, how many credits do you need? Well, Back then, so when I this was in like the late '80s that I that I went, and um, they used to offer, you know, a, I don't know, I don't think they do anymore, a general BA and an honors BA. So it was like a three year or a four year degree. Yeah, and I think I had enough credits for a three year degree, less one class, like a linguistics class that I failed or something, um, and uh, just because I didn't go because I was on tour by that point, mm-hmm. I was like nineteen and. Ed and I were touring across Canada with Corky and the Juice Pigs, and I just stopped going to school. And at that point, that was what happened. And of course, it was the right choice. But uh, I probably have what, at least in in '80s requirements, probably a year left of of uh, coursework to do. Okay, you know they hold you. You're held to that year. You're not held to 2020. Credit. Right. So you you have to you, your your degree is held to the, to those sta- uh, those requirements of that year, but if they change the year because I was in the same situation if they change the requirements, I think you can finagle your way to get the degree if it's only I had a course and a half left. Okay. If you have that many credits left, you could probably get it. You won't get honors. I didn't get honors. Right. I was gunning for honors, and then I was just like, "Just give me the degree." Right. Okay. You could do well, it. I, yeah. I mean, I should. I mean, and this is the perfect time. I could do all the coursework online. Yeah. What else are you gonna do? Oh well, you get your your weekly. Well, and I'm supposed to be making a record too, but I can't. Like, that's really hard to do that right now. I have like, you know, fifteen, sixteen songs that are done in a certain way, but like, I need to rewrite some lyrics. I need to now get. You know, get somebody to put real drums on it and that kind of thing, and I just can't—I just can't bring myself to finish it. Well, work on your educational record. No, I'm exactly. not going—I'm not going to be one of those dudes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not like I need it. Have ever needed the degree for anything, but uh, maybe I will in the future. 
Well, same with me. I mean, it was a film degree, and like back when I was in school, all that technology has moved beyond that. It's now the digital age. Right. It's obsolete. Huh. I just want it, you know. Right, for sure. Yeah. Um, and now that I got it, I got, they send you like the, because our graduation was canceled. It was supposed to be in June 16. Yeah. And uh, they give you the hat or whatever you call oh, it. Yeah. The mortar. Yeah, right. Mort mortar board, mortar, something like that. And you're supposed to have the thing on one side, the, the little tassel on a certain side or I don't know. Oh, and you flip it over to the other side? Yeah, when you graduate, yeah. Oh, you did you, when you graduated high school, they didn't give you that stuff, did they? No, our, our graduation was canceled because certain kids made an underground newspaper. Oh, and an underground, so an underground newspaper then cancels graduation? Because it had all the, uh, uh, there was porno pictures with the faces uh -huh. of the teachers glued uh -huh. on. <laughs> and uh, the principal canceled the graduation and tried to find out who did the underground newspaper. See, I, I don't even know if I remember my graduation. Well, it was just a commencement in the fall where you had to come back and like walk across the stage. Some teacher who hated me shook my hand and gave me my diploma. And that was that. But like my stepdaughter down here in, in, in New York State graduated a couple of years ago. She's in college now. And I went to their graduation. It was in this big arena at a local college and like they all had the the hat the cap and the gown oh and they all threw their caps in the air at the end like it was the end of some you know american <laughs> teen comedy <laughs> it was amazing my my so, question has always been wouldn't you i would never throw the cap in the air right i would, uh, get I back. would yeah i want to keep it i want to keep mine yep so I don't get it. And plus, I always see photos after the ceremony with people wearing the cap. They're not wearing, they're wearing someone else's cap. That's right. They've got somebody else's lice. Uh, no, nah, not for me. But that's, that's when you do the, uh, the, um, the serrated edge on your cap, like, uh, like a Blackie Lawless thing. <laughs> then you know it's yours. And if anybody else grabs it, they cut themselves. Right, right. <laughs> Um, so, uh, okay. So uh, now you've told me that you're working on an, a new album. Yeah. Um, th that's an interesting thing because when's it going to come out? Because I know people who had it ready, had their albums ready before COVID and it still hasn't been released. Right. Yeah. I, I think, I, I feel like now if I can get my act together, just getting out whenever it's ready to be put out is probably the way to do it right now. I think, you know, for me, even the last, I don't know, last few records I've done, you know, one of the things is that I've, I found that promoters don't really want to book you unless you have a new record. And, you know, we're, despite the fact that I get very little of the publicity machine and promotional machine behind my stuff anymore and you know, it's not like radio is playing the records you out there supporting it or anything else as it used to be in the old days mm -hmm. but they still want the sense that you're out there promoting some something new um when honestly i think a lot of the kind of the outside of the my core audience most people don't care to hear the new stuff they might like it when they hear it but that's not what they're there for they want to hear the, you know the things they're nostalgic about as well so having something new is kind of uh, uh, useless in a way. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I don't want I don't want to wait. I've taken a long time between records in the past, and it's it's only ever hurt me. I think, and uh, you know, if I can get this thing done, I would just put it out when it's ready, and uh, you know, and then just because the other thing is, the more I I sit on something, the less I'm less eager I am to work on the next thing. And if right. once it's out, then I'm ready to just keep going. And I think sometimes making a record, whether you know it's what you're thinking and feeling at the time, it, like you have to put them out as a, as a um, kind of a snapshot of where you were yeah. mentally and emotionally and spiritually at that time. And otherwise they kind of, they don't feel relevant to you anymore. Is that single isolation going to be on the new album? I don't know. I mean, I think it's one of those things that 
it doesn't sound like the rest of the album. And I just, I did that really quickly, wrote it quickly and recorded it quickly and had a good time doing it. Um, but I guess, you know, if somebody wants a physical copy of it, maybe it's the kind of thing like where you put it on a seven inch that comes with the album or something like that. Mm. And that of course was written in response to the lockdown and pandemic, right? Cause it came yeah. out in April. Yeah. I wrote it in like March 13th. Wow. Yeah. We were, working at Stratford on um, rehearsing this musical that I wrote with Daniel McIver, the playwright. And, uh, you know, we were a couple weeks in and everybody knew the music and we're now into doing choreography and blocking and all that kind of stuff. And it was really like starting to feel like a thing. And COVID became, you know, prominent and scary. And for, you know, a week there were, um, we would take hand washing breaks every 20 minutes and there were uh, hand sanitizers on every table and that kind of thing and opening doors with your elbow. And and then they were like, I, I think everybody was thinking, why are we here? Like, what's, should we be here? Is this safe? Is this reasonable? Is this thing even going to happen? And they said, okay, everybody go home for a few days. Um, and we'll probably be back like next week, maybe two weeks. And I was, you know, up there, I lived down here in New York and I, waited for a while and eventually they said okay you may as well go home it'll be a couple weeks and if you have to quarantine when you come back here we'll deal with that you know you can quarantine back here and then you know you might miss some rehearsal but we'll make it work nobody ever thought everything was just going to go away at that point but so i was waiting you know in my apartment in stratford waiting for word on whether to go home or not and uh the song kind of popped out just because, you know, endless scrolling on social media and yeah. uh, watching what everybody else was saying and their panic. And it was like the day that that basketball was canceled and uh, and thinking, OK, well, this is like this is real then if if money things are getting canceled. Yeah. So is the musical where is the status of the musical now? It's in who knows land, really, because, um, you know, the the whole season at the Stratford, Fest Stratford Festival was canceled this year. Um, so it's possible that if they were to start up again next season, that it could potentially be in that um, uh, in that uh, program. But I don't know, because my sense is that if they reopen next year, it will probably be with social distancing which will mean they'll have smaller audiences for every show, which my gut tells me that if I was running that festival, I would want to like just book the greatest hits we've ever done to try and get as many people in to those shows as possible and potentially not program new works. So if it happens, I'm, my gut is telling me maybe 2022. Mm. It could be next year. I would hope so. I really enjoyed doing it. So was this, um, is this, are musicals something that you've always had an interest in? Yeah, and the, fun, the funny thing about this is, I, I've always liked musical theater, and there's always something about musical theater that's made me squirm, mm -hmm. you know, the cheese element, and then the, the, the element also of what, of how musical theater treats rock and roll or popular music, um, the idea of pop singing is so unlike what I think pop singing is. <laughs> you know, it's, it's way, it has way more in common with the kind of TV pop singing, American Idol, The Voice. But it's, a, it's, another, it's another school of singing again, which is kind of foreign to me. And then the idea of that kind of Fonzie rock and roll thing that they have is like really weird. To me. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So I kind of went in with a chip on my shoulder, I think feeling like I'm going to show them how to do a rock and roll musical because... They all suck. Like the only one I ever really liked was Jersey Boys, because I thought I actually did a good job of showing what it's like to be in a band. And that music is that music. It's like it's not. It doesn't have it, it, the grit is in the personality of the singers, not in the performance of the music. You know what I mean? Right. It's like that. Those guys all sound like Joe Pesci. So it's kind of already. That's where the that's where the toughness comes in. Right. Like the right. It's not there. Um. You know, so I I thought oh, I'm going to really show them how to do it, but I I think I walked out of this thing thinking I'm kind of an idiot for thinking that I that I 
like that my art form somehow is misrepresented in theirs or that it's better than or whatever else like there's is a thing and it's like i had to learn what the rules of musical theater were in order to unlearn them and it, it was a longer process and i think i walked out of it thinking this does something different to people than than a rock concert does if i wanted to make people feel like they're at a rock concert then i could put on a rock concert but in in a, a musical, there's so many other things at play, and the way you build a story and the way you build character and so on ends up changing the way the music is presented. And uh, I learned so much from these people, and that's my favorite thing to do is to be able to go out work with people that I wouldn't normally work with and learn about what they do, and then you know walk away feeling like I didn't know anything going in. I like. I always like that. <clears throat> I think I have the same idea of musicals that you had co- going into it, but uh, we have family who do it, and every time I go see them perform, I always put myself in their position, going, "Can I do this?" And I can't. Right. I always felt like I could do the performance, and I didn't get the chance when I was, you know, younger and probably more, uh, you know, so I thought. 20 years ago, I probably could have jumped into some production already on Broadway because I would have had some cachet or whatever at that mm-hmm. point and uh, could have done that thing. But I think at that point, I was probably too much of a snob about it. Um, and as I've learned more about musical theater and about the history of it and the breadth of you know the kinds of writers that are out there, the kinds of performers that are, that are out there, and I realized that some it's just like rock music, that there's, there's shitty musicals and there's great musicals there's shitty rock music and there's great rock music like it doesn't there's you know popular stuff that's terrible in every discipline and there's popular stuff there is occasionally stuff that's really great that makes it through to the mainstream or often stuff that's really great doesn't always do as well but it's out there so you're you're um you're this whole music this is the first time for you and uh, you you collaborated with um, who is your collaborator? Because you had a partner in this, right? Yeah, Dan- Daniel McIver, Canadian playwright and actor. And I, it's not my scene. It's not my world. But I, I I'm I'm going to assume that he he's some some name in that scene. Yeah, and not in musical theater. This was his first time doing musicals as well. He's much more kind of indie. Uh, theater you know he's won a bunch of awards and i think in that theater world he's he's quite well known and well respected i I know he is but uh um you know certainly not in the mainstream and certainly not in musical theater he knew even less about musical theater than i did but but he's a great playwright and he loved you know we just we met up i went in with the idea for a musical to the Stratford Festival probably, I don't know, seven years ago. Oh. I had a bunch of the songs already written at that point and kind of played them for them and said, you know, what do I do with this? You know, at that point I thought, is this like a staged concert? Like kind of like how David Byrne's American Utopia turned out, that type of thing? Or is this uh, a musical with a story arc that I don't have yet? Like I feel like there's something there. And so they introduced me to several different uh potential collaborators and Daniel and I just hit it off really, really well. And he fell in love with the music and we became, you know, over the years, really good friends and, uh, you know, built this story, built the characters together. And he's just, he's an amazing, amazing writer. Cause he, one of the things he does that I think is probably one of his trademarks is he writes in a, in a way where the, um, it's hard for me to describe it so it, without sounding like it's what everybody else does, but he writes in a way where the, where the, the character says a bunch of stuff without saying it out loud. They might speak quickly. They might just say yes. They might just say no. And on the page, it looks like just plain words. But when you dig in, it's all there's so much subtext in sometimes very plain language. And, uh, and, it kind of when it comes to life, it's like blows my mind, and you know that's the kind of feeling I like to get 
to every time is like when we can when we can work together with the cast and the director and everybody else and make these moments happen it's a very different thing than just performing the song um and that's that's a pretty awesome awesome feeling you know i'd done a bunch of theatrical scoring at strapper before like i've done the the underscore for six different plays which is again a totally different discipline for me like I'm used to writing songs for me to sing downstage center with the spotlight on me. Um, and here I'm writing musical cues that their job is to s set or enhance mood without stepping on the actor's lines or the lighting designer's design or the sound designer's thing. Like it's, it's mm -hmm. all about fitting in to a, something that's way bigger than what your individual thing is. And that, you know, that, help me write this musical too what what i always wondered about musicals aside from like you're saying the big marquee ones like you know west side story or cats or whatever where the songs live on what happens to these songs that are hanging on the vine of these these musicals uh when the play is over when the musical is has run its course that's what i've always wondered about all the work that you put into it, because the, the the work that you put into the music side of the musical is still the same as making an album. You're still writing music, but then yeah. when the, the 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 show has run its course, the songs cease to exist, really, unless they take on a life of their own. If the show becomes like you know huge, like that's uh, right. So what ha like isn't that's isn't that unfulfilling? Totally. I think absolutely. I think that, you know, that's one of the like making a a musical or, you know, the, with its sights set on Broadway, let's say, is one of the most um, self-destructive choices you can make, I think. Yeah. Um, we're You know, this, you know, it's one thing to, to you, know, you write a song and you write it. It is like you're just writing the song like you're making an album. Part of you is part of the discipline is different in the sense that like you're working with the rest of this team and they go, okay, we're going to move this scene over here. And now that song doesn't make sense because this person already knows this thing or this person's dead by that point or whatever it is. So all of a sudden you're writing, rewriting songs and having to come into rehearsal the next day with a song that I've lived with for five years that now is sung by somebody else and means something different and it's cut half or it's twice as long or whatever it is, or it's now a duet. Like, and I love it and hate it at the same time because you're like, no, 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 I wrote the right thing. My thing's perfect. <laughs> but then part of you is like, you want this song to be in the show? You make it fit in the show. Um, I love all that challenge. But yes, the, what happens is, you know, they say traditionally it takes about seven years to get a musical on its feet. Um, let's say it actually ever gets produced. I'm, I'm lucky that, you know, we actually had a proper commission from the Stratford Festival. And even though it hasn't been produced officially yet, it still has the chance of that happening. Um, and also the chance of running a full season at the, at the festival. What happens with a lot of other shows is they might show up, like let's say, in the Fringe Festival in Toronto and play two shows, and that's the end of it. Or um, you know, even you know, other, other shows will make it, they'll do, they'll do some regional production and then go to Off-Broadway and then hit Broadway and then flop and be done after three weeks. And yeah, there's no cast album. Yeah. And a lot of these musical rights holders are really, really, um, intensely against, um, what they see. I see as kind of a, uh, a Napster era sense of piracy. They think everybody's going to pirate their musicals. And you know, there's cases of people like suing elementary schools for not getting the right license, um, to stage, whatever shrek the musical or something um and it, you know i understand that they have rights and they they need to get paid for it but one of the things is there is this whole world of theater kids like who are like kind of how i assume you know you and i both were as teenagers with with our own music where it's like you're they love to dig and do research and try and find the most obscure stuff and say that it's the best and whatever they're like, you know, indie kids in a way, 
um, or you know music nerds, but when it comes, but it's about musical theater. So then you know wow. they put this stuff up online and it gets taken down. And um, I guess in the days of Tumblr, that was a big deal for, for them. people would be putting up recordings or the score of a musical or whatever else. But you know, for instance, on Broadway, every single show that ever airs on Broadway gets videotaped and put into this library at Lincoln Center. And um, they won't put this stuff online. So right. people can't watch it on YouTube. So all they can watch is like, you know, that's why people bring their phones to theaters. So they've put this stuff up on YouTube. And it's all, it's very uh, underground. And I think that's kind of awesome. But that's the only way this music lives on. And it feels like the rights holders do everything in their power to make sure people don't have access to it unless it's cats. You know, unless it's a really successful show. Right, yeah, because <clears throat> I am not a fan. I'm not in that scene. I don't, you know. But dipping my feet and just, just peering into this world, I realized a few years back that there's all these, all these plays with musicals that have, you know, there's got to be one song in 12 that I'll like at least right. or think it's good. And it's, it's like, you know, like a beached whale. On the, uh, just left for dead. Yeah. And that's just crazy to me when I think about, and I did not know that there's a scene of kids who are, who are keeping this thing alive. I do remember, I don't know if you remember this TV show, maybe 15 years ago, there was, there was called Triple Threat by Garth Drabinsky. And it was a reality show trying to find the next theater star. Right. And they had all these kids who could sing and act and, and uh, dance. Mm -hmm. I guess they; those are. That's the scene. I, I, I was watching, I a, going, "Who? Where? How are these kids raised?" <laughs> right. My, um, I, I have three kids. My young, my middle son. Um, they were all, all, all my kids were involved in some way in musical theater. But my middle son um, got involved in some. Like he got dragged to a, a thing by some friends in middle school from there. Like it was like a theater class. Um, that would do these shows. Um, and he kind of got dragged into it and fell in love with it. And I would, I would go see their shows and I think like, this is, these kids are amazing. And this, you know, like this show was good. I don't, I don't know about this stuff, but it's they're like to watch your kid kind of come alive on stage like that is right. like a really heavy thing. Uh, and also a really light thing, but it's, it's an amazing feeling. So he ended up going, um, to Sheridan College in uh, in Oakville, right, and got his degree last year in like a four year degree in musical theater performance. But he's also a writer; like he's he can play a bunch of instruments. But he he wrote a musical wow. that actually was in a festival off Broadway last year and at the New York Musical Theater Festival. He won Best New Musical. Wow! Uh, yeah, the kid's like twenty one. Uh, he's amazing, but he's you know now he's just in that world of it's the era of COVID and he's trying to get work acting <laughs> or whatever, but he's also, you know, also writing and directing and all that other kind of stuff as well. But, you know, he just, he found his way into that world and I happened to kind of on a parallel path, find my way into that world too. Um, and it's, it's amazing when they kind of intersect that way. Uh, my question would be for his musical that won the award, what happens to the songs? Yeah, exactly. I think they just sit there because now there's, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's no new production of it or anything else. So they sit there unless somebody comes along and records them as pop songs and mm -hmm. they live, they live on somewhere else, you know, and you can always do that, try and pitch that stuff. But yes, once they actually are part of the property, it's not like you can, you can lift them out individually to cover them, but you couldn't put them in another song show. Right. Here. Yeah, that's <clears throat> such, such, so 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 weird for music to exist like that, because some of it's probably gold, you know, and it's just sitting there. Yeah, that's interesting. So <clears throat> I also wanted to ask you about um, the uh, Trans Canada Highwaymen project, which I find very very fascinating. Um, it's kind of like a traveling Wilburys or a Highwaymen actually uh, project between you. Uh, Craig Northey of The Odds, uh, Chris Murphy of Sloan, and I know him, oh, Mo Berg. Yep. And you guys perform each other's songs. You guys don't 
collab or songwrite? As of yet. Aha. Uh-huh. So we started doing some shows a bunch of years ago. Um, I had thought I had had this idea years ago. Like I was touring with Craig Northey. He tours with me in both in my trio and we do duo shows. And I also do shows with the odds as my band. So it's like we have, and we write together and we're kind of best buds. And I thought we were hanging out with Chris Murphy at one point. I thought it wouldn't be great if the three of us did something together. And like, you know, I thought it'd be cool for the three of us to just play our songs together as a trio or something. Um, to play at, I don't know, festivals or whatever else, you know, a bit of a nostalgia thing, but also just us having fun. And, uh, and then we had uh, our friend Jim Milan, who's, uh, actually a theater director and stuff as well, but does like kids in the hall and kind of big theatrical shows as well said, uh, I guess he was talking to Mo Berg about doing something very similar. Um, having Mo hook up with, with, uh, Chris Murphy. And anyways, the whole thing just ended up becoming the four of us. And we did a tour, um, a theater tour in Ontario with projection stuff. And it was like, you know, kind of a, uh, storytellers kind of thing where we tell stories about the songs and about our, you know, time in the nineties and two thousands, making music and jokes and whatever else. But the, the concept was that we would all switch off instruments, which largely meant that Chris Murphy got his songs destroyed by me and Craig on drums. Because, um, <laughs> you know, he's a great drummer and yeah. we are terrible. Um, and I could just see he just cringes, you know, ruining his, his beautiful songs. Um, That's great. Where like Craig plays drums on Old Apartment or something and I just love it. It's like, ah, dad's playing drums, everybody. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. Um, but we ended up just doing that, and then we, we've done some, some some festivals and stuff over the years, and we just love hanging out together. Right, and okay. So during the pandemic, we started just doing, like, videos at home. So everybody, you know, you've seen them a million times where everybody does their, their part, passes it on to the next person, mm-hmm. and uh, we overlay them. But they turned out really well, and they were fun to do. And so then we started thinking, okay, what's next? We'll start, I think we'll start making an album. Um, but is it originals or is it covers or, um, well, I, so I think right now we're in, well, I know we're in the, uh, in the middle of determining what that album is going to be. Cause I think there's an element of covers that we want to do CanCon covers or something like that. Oh, right. Um, mixed with, then I, you know, I wrote a song for us that I think is pretty awesome. So now I'm trying to convert, convince everybody else to write a song. So we'll see if we get there. But I think that, you know, the the plan is to at least make a record and then have that tour behind when things open up too. Oh wow! There's um, <clears throat> have you heard of Took? That band yes. Took. And so we're aware. I know I know Took, uh, and you know they do the stuff pretty straight. Like it's like, in the sense that it's like, it sounds like the records. Oh well, yeah! Oh man, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and I love it. But we want to make sure that like there's a difference so that we you know if the if the day came that we could do a show with two that it wouldn't just feel like one big set you know so that ours our point is like to do you know whatever i want to do i got the message by men without hats and make it sound like like the four of us right right and, you know so you can definitely tell it's like or whatever there's uh you know there's chris murphy singing high school confidential right <laughs> i would uh i would pay to see that I would Actually, pay to see I that. think Mo would do the best of that. Yes, yes, I think so too. Yeah, I could hear his voice. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I had a, I, I, well, we've had this idea kicking around, and I, it's not as serious as, as I want it to be, but <clears throat> it was supposed to be me, Blaine from Nashville Pussy, yep. Mick Collins from The Dirt Bombs, Eddie Spaghetti from The Super Suckers, and I think we were trying to we we're gonna we were talking about getting Lisa from the Bell Rays to do a traveling Wilburys thing. Yeah, awesome. That's that, like I love that stuff. Part of my joke too is like we need one like who do we get? I mean, I think the ultimate for us, if we were if we were to really do a Wilburys, um, is to get Burton Cummings. <laughs> He'd be the Roy Orbison, right? Yeah. You gotta have the one <laughs> old guy. Um, you know, and hope he doesn't do a Del Shannon and die partway through. But <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I can't think of anybody better than Burton. I think he'd be awesome. Oh yeah, that would be. But isn't he a handful? I don't I mean you yeah, probably I'm sure know. he is. 
he's, he, he's been he's I've met him a few times and he's always been so incredibly nice to me. Okay. Um, but I'm sure he's I'm sure he's a handful. But who cares? <laughs> you don't <laughs> live with him, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, I've learned I've learned over the years to not get upset about that stuff anymore. And it's just like, okay, let's have a good laugh about it. And then, uh, but I mean, I'm just me fantasizing about Burton Cummings being in my band. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that that's pretty funny. Well, that's how the Wilburys were with Orbison. If you read the Tom Petty autobiography, he kind of lays out how that group formed, and I think they, him and Harrison, approached Orbison at a, at Orbison's show. Yeah. And the way he met Harrison, if I because I re, I read the book like ten years ago, was he was driving in L.A. And they drove past one of these, like, Michelin restaurants. And they said, who eats at these places for lunch? Let's do it. And George Harrison was eating there for lunch. And so, (laughs) so, because you always make it a big night out for dinner if you're going to, you know, throw down the money. So, yeah, he's just casually eating there for lunch because he can afford it. And I think that's... I think that's the nub of the Traveling Wilburys right there. And then when they went, they wanted to get Roy Orbison. And then they drove home, him and George Harrison going, we got Roy Orbison's in our band. (laughs) (laughs) So it's very similar if you get Burton Cummings, I think. That would be awesome. Well, if you like the Wilburys, I did on my last, my last album, I did a song called Shooting Star where I tried to actually be the Traveling Wilburys. So it's like all it's these overlapping verses all in different octaves. <laughs> trying oh, really? To, without actually really overtly imitating them in my mind, I was like, okay, this is the this is the Petty and Dylan together verse. Okay, here's the the, the Jeff Lynn part. Here's the and there, there's there's Roy, and uh, yeah, it was fun to do. Well, I'm gonna uh, you know, try and add as much Jeff Lynn production as possible. All <laughs> right, I, I want to hear the uh, the the Dylan tracks i want to hear your dylan takes (laughs) (laughs) and i was gonna say you could shoot for a for a roy orbison or you could shoot for a you know tom petty jeff lynn and uh yours truly over here uh Uh, there we go there you go that could be fun the uh who's the guy on the end there (laughs) i could fill that role (laughs) one of my favorite chris murphy things he, he does is after, whatever, after one of his songs, we finish the song and he goes, ah, <laughs> what song was that? <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I remember when the Traveling Wilburys hit the scene and I, and I would be watching their video, the, the, the first one, yeah. and I would be like, okay, I know who that guy is. Who's that? I, I know who that guy is. Who's that guy? And it was Jeff Lynne. I didn't right. know who he was, so... It took some time. Um, then See, I re- I, and I loved, like, there was a point in, a small point in time in my childhood where I where I decided I loved ELO. And it was when it was, ELO was not cool. Wasn't When the Time album came out. So it was like, I don't know, 81 or 82 or something. Just, I still think it was a great record. So I thought they were cool. But then I remember by, like, the Wilbury's time and then him producing the Beatles. Mm-hmm. I, I was like, what are you doing there, man? Hanging out. With the good guys, but now I love him. Now I think he, now he, now I realize he's one of the good guys. Yeah, I, that that documentary of him playing Wembley. I thought if I if I could ever just be a backup singer on a tour, I'd like to be one of his backup singers. Oh, uh, Jeff Lynne, like yeah. ELO. Yeah, yeah, I could see you really digging that. Yeah, nice. you're a huge Beatle maniac. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. get it. I get it. No, that that's I I love that idea because I think um, I ran into Chris on Queen Street the night you guys were playing the Horseshoe. Oh yeah, and I was doing something else. I cannot remember what I was doing, or else I would have tried to check you guys out. And he he laid it out to me as to what it was. I didn't know, so I was like, "Wow, that sounds pretty cool." But uh, yeah. yeah, it's fun, and and the best part for us is just the text thread when we, uh, you know it's just where it's where we go for jokes right 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 i have a few of those too yeah, yeah. especially during lockdown jesus oh it's insane yeah but it's good it's it's kept it's kept me 
it's buoyed me through a lot of this. Well, we're we're neighbors with Sloan at our rehearsal space. Oh, okay. So we've gotten into a few tiffs with them over yeah, the years. Get a, little, get a little loud sometimes. Yeah, but like Jesus Christ, record your album in a studio, not your yeah. rehearsal space. Um, that's what we're doing. That's why we're recording. I mean, that's why we're practicing. Um, right. But that thread is through JC, our bass player, and Chris. They always go back and forth. <laughs> and it's basically, when are you guys done? That's all, <laughs> that's all the text is right. that he gets. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but that's cool. That's great. Yeah, I, 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 I would love, I'm a sucker for that stuff, all the, the CanCon stuff and, and digging into the back catalog there. I, I, I love that stuff because, you know, we, we growing up, we were inundated by it and nobody else knows uh, of it outside of Canada. Right. And that's kind of some of the debate now is like, well, how much should the audience know of this material? Are we introducing material to the audience or are playing stuff that they already know in a new way? And then you look back, like we, we were thinking about just, you know, starting with the seventies, there's so much terrible, terrible music from the seventies in Canada, like not even good apart from like the poppy family and the DeFranco family. Like there's, nothing good <laughs> in even in the kind of bubblegum pop or when you go to like the am gold type stuff most of it's terrible or you know the, the few things that are good are people who didn't like they who didn't they didn't stand the test of time so people don't necessarily know who they are now yeah so then you're like well am i should i just be doing seals and crofts at this point <laughs> isn't one of seals and crofts canadian anyways i'm not sure but but I think Todd Kearns wants him and I to do a Seals and Crofts thing, like Kearns and Jones. Oh, that'd be nice. <laughs> I, don't know, I, I even posted about it with our heads on top of theirs. <laughs> and I, I just wrote on Instagram, should this be a thing? <laughs> I, yeah, I would say yes. Why not? <laughs> well, listen, if, if the, the Trans-Canada Highwaymen need, to, need a headpins cover, I'm your gal guy. <laughs> yes, that's true. Good. Because I was actually, I was trying to push for, for Don't Make You Feel Like Dancing. Yeah. And no, nobody else bit. Oh, nobody man. Bit. Steven, you and I. I you even made everybody watch the, watch the video. And uh, that didn't, the, the, the dancing and, and out of sync backup singing did not convince them. Because, <laughs> I mean, I, I love Darby Mills' voice. Uh, yep. I think she's the epitome of a rock voice. So. It's intense. It's amazing. Yeah, it's so amazing, and it, and that's another you know reason to do projects like this is to remind people look who was out there and who's still she's still doing it, right? Yep. So yeah, I, I I throw down the headpins at the drop of a hat because I was listening to her latest album yesterday and admiring it, the fact that she still has the voice she could still pull it out. That's awesome. You would think, like, after years of singing like that... Like know, that, especially, yeah. It, it, it goes down, but no. It's really interesting. And inspiring for myself, because, Jesus. <laughs> Who knows? Well, yeah. I, had, I mean, how do, you, how do you keep... I I don't know. I don't know the secret of how to keep your voice. I do all the stuff you're supposed to do, and sometimes it just goes anyways. And then I don't do the stuff, and the voice stays the same, and it's fine. I don't know. Yeah, part of it is like I just have to go through a warm up when we're touring, just because of if I don't mentally, I'm gonna sh my voice is gonna shut down. Right. That's that's what it's mentally. That's yeah. the thing. Is I think stress or anxiety. That's when my voice shuts down. Yeah. Yeah. And talking over van engines. Yep. And <clears throat> making sure that you know you don't sit beside the uh, the vent at night in your bunk or something like that. Yep. So yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of things that go into it that nobody, like even Chris wouldn't know. There's four singers in his band. It's not really on him. Yeah. You know, yeah, they, that's right. They just won't do Chris songs that night. Or he's only doing, you know, or he'll, he'll do his four or, you know, kind of the four hits or whatever it is. Like, it's easy. that's one thing I've noticed with the Highwaymen shows is like, oh, wow, to not have to do all of it. Like with Bare Naked Ladies. There were still Ed songs and stuff, but a lot of it was harmonies, singing mm -hmm. all the way through everything. When I do shows on my own now, yeah, 
and sometimes you know it's two and a half hours of singing. I'm wow. so dead at the end of it. Two and a half hours? Holy sometimes cow! I talk a lot too, but yeah, even my live streams like they started being. I don't know, 75 minutes. And the one I did on Sunday was two hours and 41 minutes. 28 songs. We were like, well, I guess I'm enjoying it. And they, people didn't tune out. Is there interaction between the audience? Like, do people ask questions? Uh, it's, it's not as informal as that. Although sometimes I'll be like, what's the first line of the second verse? Can somebody put it in the chat? And then I can see people will feed me the lines. Or occasionally I do ask <laughs> questions or something like that. But... <laughs> It's it's it, I try and do it more as a show, but we do it on Zoom so you can see everybody's faces and they you know they talk to each other in the chat and so on. It's pretty cool that way. Wow, that's uh, I think you got it down for lockdown. Yeah, it's worked. It's worked. You're one of the few. I think a lot of people have given up. Well, and I think audiences have too. I mean, I'll, when I first started doing this, I mean, the most you can get in a regular Zoom meeting where people can see each other is. A thousand people. And that's what I was selling out every week until middle of the summer. um, It started to slide down. And now I get somewhere around, you know, 350 to 400 a show, which is awesome. Sometimes that's what I play in a club or whatever. And and I didn't have to pay any crew or or accommodations or anything else. That's amazing. I just go downstairs. And if, if I can sustain... You know, even a few hundred every week, then it feels like you're just doing something for somebody for for them. Oh, that's that's amazing. That that is amazing. I don't know any. The only other person I know who's doing something like that is Ricky Warwick, of the Black Star Riders. Uh-huh. He does an acoustic uh, show, but he doesn't do. I don't think he does it weekly, like you do. It's wow. Well, and a lot of people stopped it. I think you know people started like stopped doing it. But I think also people who aren't like audience members in a way are like um, they're zoomed out. You know, they spend their week doing zoom meetings and whatever mm-hmm. else. Yeah. But when the, I think the core people realize that this is kind of a, a group of friends that they can look forward to seeing. And it's a different thing, but I've watched others. And for me, I find like watching an online concert or whatever else is hard work. Like it's, it is it's kind of tiring. So I'm extra grateful to the people who, who actually show up week after week. Yeah, uh, that is a testament to the people who love your music. Yeah. Or your music, period. Right. Yeah. And they you know, they just they feel comfortable with it. And I just whatever, I'll switch instruments up or I'll try different arrangements of songs and sometimes I'll just completely blow it and sometimes it's great and you know, they they like that. I'm doing quarantine jams. How are you people. doing those? So uh, the song is decided. Uh, I wait for the music. As the singer, I will wait for the drums and the guitars. Mm-hmm. Uh, just those two instruments. I don't need anything else. No solos or bass. And then I'll lay down my vocal on GarageBand and send it over to whoever is doing it. And then we record ourselves singing it or performing the song. And then a video editor will edit it all together. I've done it twice now, and I have two that are coming up that I have to do. That's cool. all I've done. It's fun. I just we just posted one about I'm singing a Slayer song with <coughs> one of the guys, uh, Daniel Decay from Exciter, Ted from Death Angel, and then there's a couple other ones that are with some pretty he- look. It's crazy heavy hitters coming up. So it's it's a fun way to. It's a fun way to do that. Nice. That's With, great. Without you, you're doing something different, but I'm, st- I'm still performing and putting it out there. But yeah. And I did one with Sepultura too, where I sang a Sepultura song with the band. So cool. But that's it. It's more metal, more metal stuff. I'm not doing, you know, I'm not getting to do like a, I don't know, like a Emmett Martha and the Muffins song or something like <laughs> you know, romantic traffic or something. Uh, I think we had uh, I think we had uh, old emotions in our list. Oh man, I did. I read that guy's autobiography. Gord Debbie has what has a autobiography. Yes, he does. I, yes. I need to read it. Yes, you sh- I, I can pass you the details, <clears throat> or I could just send you the book. 
I can, you know, I can purchase it if it's available for sale. Yes, yes, yes. Does he he mention, I remember that time we played at Ontario Place Forum and Stephen Page broke his finger getting crushed against the barricade? (laughs) Oh, my God. No, he did not mention that, I don't think. Wow. Yeah, you guys got to, you guys got to hook up. (laughs) Well, this is great, Stephen. This is amazing. Great talk. Great. Thank you. Thanks, man. Have a good day. Yeah, you too. Take care. All right. Bye.